March already, Mark. Can you believe that? I know. It's crazy, right? You know what it is? The first six months of a year always go very fast, and then yeah. the second six months uh, go a lot slower. And the third six months goes even faster. Yeah, it's crazy. Move the mic closer to your uh, your pie hole. Thank you. How's this, Wade? That's uh, slightly better, but uh, yeah. You can tell. With yeah. <laughs> after all these years, we're still, <laughs> still not much of a production, are we? <laughs> it's a whole, it's a mobile studio. It's a mobile studio. It has to be, so that we're agile. Uh, you know, so we're still in uh, kind of Oscar cleanup mode a little bit with uh, the movies get released, the, the the weeks that roll by after are of course uh, loaded with lots of uh, lots of Oscar contenders that are hoping to capitalize on the possibility of having won Oscars. They roll the dice, right? You think, okay, we we stand a good chance of winning an Oscar, so we'll set our Blu-ray and DVD release date for a week or two after, maybe the day after, or two or two days after, as it as it was this year, and um, maybe we'll win something. And uh, very often they don't. So we may as well get right into it, Mark. Yes, we should. We have, a, we have a ton of... Uh, we've got foreign films that I'm hoping we'll get to. So let's get right to it. Let's, uh, let's talk about a film that uh, was considered at one moment in time to be a possible Oscar contender, Oscar-winning director, uh, you know, certainly not, had, the, had the pedigree, right? Not we saw just that, an Oscar-winning director, wait, wait a yeah. minute. That's somebody whose last film made us think, wow... Ron Howard might have his mojo back again. He might. It looked, right? it, it looked good terrific. for a moment. Sure, Rush was great. My favorite film of that year. And that then, was amazing. And then, what does he follow up Rush with? In the Heart of the Sea. Which, you know what? I mean, look, the idea here was, let's go back to the original story that, that uh, underlies Moby Dick, and let's tell the original story, which sometimes, you know, that's a double-edged sword, right? There are, the, because sometimes the original story ain't so hot. There's a reason why... They get turned into novels and loosely fictionalized stories because somebody saw something and said, you know what, not such a great story, but I can make it better. Case in point, Hamlet, okay? The, the Danish director who did um, Babette's Feast, whose name's completely skipping me, but he, uh, some years later, made a movie uh, about the, uh, the actual real story behind Hamlet starring Gabriel Byrne. I mean, this goes back 25 years, but it was, it was like really dull because the the, the real story they like live in mud huts and the the king is like a king of ten people and you know it's suddenly it's it's like really medieval and really dressed down and not very interesting at all and you realize Shakespeare was yeah you you need to you you need to dress that up a little bit there's some embellishment required so here I thought well it just it's it's not better than Moby Dick I mean, it's flamboyant. It's got lots of CG. And What's going to, what is going... How could this movie ever be better than Moby Dick? And, that's the thing. You know, look, if you want to see... There's so many other films that, that tackle, you know, seafaring, maritime, yeah. you know, material better. Just go ahead and watch, like, the Moby Dick where they horribly miscast uh, Gregory Peck. But still, oh, it's so a good. great Moby Dick. It, written by Ray Bradbury. Yes. Yeah. And I read the book. You know, Ray Bradbury wrote, Ray Bradbury wrote a book yeah. about the making of... About I the know. writing of the script. And I read Pretty that great. book. And if you read that book and you watch the movie, A, you don't have to read Moby Dick. You don't have to read Moby Dick. Yeah. And uh, B, you don't have to see this film. 
Well, anyway, it takes place uh, 1820, and of course it uh, stars Chris Hemsworth, who is nice and square-jawed and, uh, and rugged and fits the part perfectly. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, it, it, it misses all of the sort of dr- the, the fundamental, elemental, dramatic components of Moby Dick. Um, it doesn't feel very well constructed, and it's just kind of a director's showpiece. Um, that said, you know, the, the, this may wind up being one of the last sort of uh, non-superhero, non-tentpole 3D movies released to Blu-ray. I mean, I know the, the, the 3D is kind of going away. 3D now, is going you know? away. It's going away like we said it would. Uh, but I don't see any period films showing up in 3D for a very long time, if ever again. So this may be the last one. Well, let's hope so. Yeah, because well. right now, you know, now the uh, the home electronic manufacturers now they're all about the the uh, the ultra HD mm-hmm. and the 4K. Yep. They, they they turn their attention to something else. To 4K, 3D completely. did not happen. Nope, didn't happen. So if you got a 3D TV and 3D Blu-rays and the goggles and the whole deal, hang on to it because you are going to be able to eBay that stuff in like five years for about a buck twenty-five. It'll be awesome. Like my Vectrex. I have a Vectrex. I, used I to know have a Vectrex. you do. I love Vectrex still. I, I still do. Do I, you really? Oh, I owned a Vectrex. Yeah, when it came out. You I still have it. it. Oh God, no. Oh. I sold. It. I think I sold it to somebody. Now you, you're going to kill me for this. I think I sold it to somebody for forty bucks. This is like fifteen years ago. I would have bought it from you for forty bucks. That was the best game ever with the no, little was, with the little was, joysticks and the whole. Oh, that yes, was the best. Yes, it was in black and white. The the, 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 the monitor was in black and white, and they gave you with each game you bought. Each best. game you bought came with this plastic color overlay to simulate the See, game now being I'm, color. Now, now I've got to go onto eBay and buy myself a Vectrex. I'll bet I can get one for like ten bucks. Uh, you know what? I, let's let's waste more time. All right. On the show by talking okay. about Vectrex. I'm so, see how much they are right now. Blu-ray, 3D, Blu-ray, DVD, and ultraviolet all on the same uh, same thing. Uh, lots of special features. Really interesting stuff, actually, believe it or not. Even though the movie's not that good. Uh, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff with Ron Howard and how the movie was planned and put together. Uh, and, you know, the, the original story. I mean, it's really, really rather elaborate. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good set. I mean, the movie, the movie is lacking, but... Uh, here it is, three hundred thirty-eight bucks of Vectrex. Oh, really, three hundred thirty-eight. Yep. Okay. So uh, on the other uh, side of the equation is a film that actually won an Academy Award. It only won one, uh, but it won one, which continues to affirm the fact that films that win the uh, Audience Award at the Toronto Film Festival continue to be Oscar contenders because it was also nominated for Best Picture. And we are, of course, talking about Room, which won Brie Larson a very deserved Best Actress finally at long last. You know, for years, she has been right there in the Lafka Best Actress conversation for movies that nobody sees. You know... It's you been like five... Every year for five years, people are like, oh, Brie Larson in, uh, you know, the, the, the bottle that found its way up the side of a mountain. And you're like, what? Who? Where? where? What? You know what else it proves? It proves that when the Academy expanded their Best Picture nominees from five to ten, these are the films that wound up yeah. slipping in. Not Star True. Wars. True. And not the big, not the Avengers. How do you feel about Room? You know, I felt, I'm I'm a bit in the minority about Room. I felt that Room took a very respectable, good shot at a very tough subject and didn't quite hit the target for me. Now, I don't have kids. So it's possible that people with kids think that it it hits them on a different level. For me, you know, you had to spend the first hour, it's it's a very noble attempt, but to me, you had to spend the first hour. You know, the, 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 the first hour of that film is very well shot. Yeah. Right? It is. It's claustrophobic, but yet you don't feel like you're going to kill yourself. True. And so you have to – that first hour has to be so incredible that the second hour just feeds off that. And I, I, I didn't feel like I spent enough time in the room for the second hour to affect me as much as I was hoping. 
Um, but I'm in the minority. Yeah, you know, it's a very tender subject. I think everybody knows what it's about now. I'm, if you don't, I'm not going to tell you. But uh, it's, it's one of the best films I've seen about the relationship between a parent and a child. Um, Jacob Tremblay is amazing as the son. He's just phenomenal. She's amazing. Uh, well, she's great. She's great. And I got to say, here's what really most impressed me. It's based on a novel, for those who don't know. Uh, Lenny Abramson who directed it, uh, I think has really come of age as a director. He, he's, he, you know, he, he was never on anybody's lips before. He was one of those directors that's sort of you know, there in the back of your head and you, you, you're aware. But the, the thing that's amazing to me about this film is that there are moments in the film that you know are coming. You're like, okay, I get it. I understand the premise. I know where we're going to go emotionally. I know where you're going to, you know, you're going to turn the screws and you want me to cry here and you want me to cheer here. And you know that those moments are coming because it, otherwise there'd be no reason to even have the film. It would just, the only other place you could go would be a, a, a pit of such unbelievable depression that no one would want to, why even make the movie? So you know that those moments are coming, those moments of elation and, you know, uh, catharsis and you prepare yourself for it because we've all seen we've all had those emotions in movies before we're familiar with them and so you steal yourself for it and you say okay it's coming I know it's coming I know how I'm going to feel I, let's you know I dare you to actually measure up to the, the best that I know that those moments can be and son of a bitch he beats it he gives you even stronger moments than you know are coming and I got to give him credit for that as, as a director to take a moment an emotional moment and the audience is expecting it and they know how they want to feel and then to exceed that is really quite a gift so I think he's uh, I, I think the second half of the film is weaker than the first because you kind it's sort of anticlimactic it relies on a different set of emotions but uh, that being said there's really no no way around it he he, he kills it where he has to kill it uh, yeah, and again, yeah. it's it, it's really her film. It's really it's it, totally her. If film. she did not deliver, yeah, then it just would have been an exercise in. It, it would have been too melodramatic, is what would have happened. Listen to the commentary here with uh, Lenny Abramson and uh, and various crew members. Uh, it is really really worth listening to. There aren't a lot of commentaries these days that I, I feel give you anything new. This one does. It is really really worth listening to. And then there are some uh, featurettes, and uh, that's about it. But otherwise, uh, it's wonderful. This is a Blu-ray. With digital HD, it is from Lionsgate, uh, which means it is ultraviolet. So uh, enjoy that. Uh, we have uh, Youth. The Hated new, it. The new from, uh, uh, what's his name, Sorrentino. Sorrentino. And uh, Sorrentino also directed uh, the, uh, the Great Beauty to Oscar-winning success, a film that I loved. This one, I, I just think this thing is just a misfire. It's with Michael Caine and Harvey Keitel. They play these uh, their lifelong friends. They're vacationing in the Swiss Alps. And it just becomes this... Really unbelievable. Oh, wait, hang on. Who texted me? Someone texted you? Yes. I'm Just now? Po- yes, I'm very po- Actually, it's the birthday boy. Oh, well, very a- good. After this podcast is done, I need to go to a birthday party. That's beautiful. Just put it out there. Uh, anyway, it's uh, they're they're in the Swiss Alps, and I just think this thing is just it's overwrought. Oh, it's and, I, and it's pretentious, and I never bought it, and no. it's just too up its own butt. Yeah, I agree. You know, I agree. Here's the thing: my problem with Sorrentino. Uh, Sorrentino has, for you know, he, now that he's won an Oscar, he won an Oscar for the the Great Beauty, uh, which I loved. For which which I don't particularly love, but I, I get it. But the thing is. He's always been kind of posturing himself as the new uh, Fellini, and uh, in order to do that, and he seems to have missed the fact that before Fellini became the guy that did all of this sort of uh, overly artificial theatrical weirdness, 
uh, with just strange things happening and all of this kind of orgiastic excess on the screen just for the sake of being indulgent. He actually made movies like La Strada, which were real movies. You know, they were earthy and they were heartfelt, and he sort of earned the right to go bananas. Sorrentino hasn't earned the right to go bananas. He's been making wacky, weird, excessive, indulgent movies from day one. So he hasn't really earned that in my mind yet. And then The Great Beauty is just like a, it's like an, a, a Fellini homage. It's just completely parroting Fellini. So, you know, and now he's just, it's just more of the same. And it's, you know what, I'm sorry, two guys hanging out at a resort in, uh, in, in Switzerland with uh, what's-his-face uh, doing the uh, doing weird little meditative stuff as well. Oh, that, that, that scene where the, uh, where, the, where the monk levitates. Oh, is... stop it. None of it makes any sense. It's so, it's just, it's, it's threadbare, and he's, he's just, he's indulgent now. I'm, I'm tired of it. I'm, I'm done with it. Um, that said, Michael Caine and Harvey Keitel, I guess they're fine, but it, Paul Dano. Paul Dano is just oh, being, that's right. I guess, freaking weird stuff, you know. Paul Dano is like, Loves weird. You need to corral him. You need to rein him in. Um, and then the uh, the last two of our new movies, before we get into our giant pile of classics, uh, the first one is the Peanuts movie. Meh. It uh, doesn't really disgrace Peanuts. The animation's good. They do good characterization. They, 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 they certainly don't uh, disgrace the, uh, the, the look and the feel of, of Peanuts. The, the voice characterization is fine, but... I, otherwise, it's just... It's, you know what's funny is that... nothing remarkable. There was no reason for this movie to exist. It, You know, it somehow... It so gave me everything I wanted that in the end I thought, isn't there anything else? Like, at least with, some, at least with a lot of these reboots, like J.J.'s Star Wars or Star Trek, he's giving you everything you want but adding just enough so you feel it's like True. at least it's new enough, I guess. Yeah. This one, it gives you everything you want, and yet at the end it still feels a little empty. Yeah, True. And, and, you know, uh, Brian Schultz was producer on this, and uh, as was Craig Schultz. So, I mean, the, the Schultz family is, is represented. It's rated G. It's perfectly fine for kids. Uh, the, the, uh, but I'll tell you this. My daughter, the thing that most excited her was that the, when they sent this to us, it came with a little plush Snoopy. She cannot Aww. leave that thing alone. She's been sleeping with it for, for three nights now. Aww. Yeah. And then uh, the, uh, the last one on the new film front is The Forbidden Room. Oh, my gosh. Did you, did you have a chance to watch this? I did not. Oh, my gosh, Mark. Okay, first off, we have to point out this is Guy Madden. I, uh, now, I, now, here's the thing. I love Guy Madden. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I, I, I don't like the fact that I missed this, okay. but I did miss it. Okay. So, so I just want you to look at the, at the credit bed on the back. Well, wait, look, hang look a at second. The credit bed. Is, is this in color? Uh, partly. A Guy Madden film in color? Partly. Okay, the credit bed. That's a big-ass credit bed. Yeah. Yes, wow, it is. Wow, I've never seen a bigger one. <laughs> I'm trying to see what it is. Okay, so one, here's... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's nine lines of text. Yes, it is. It's, it's ridiculous. Well, it's a lot of it is the cast. It's it the never-ending like. cast. Everyone shows up in this movie. You will not believe who shows up in this movie. And they all play, like, double and triple roles, and it's, it's crazy. So no point in naming all the stars that show up in this. Guy Madden, of course, is the, the Winnipeg Canadian filmmaker who makes movies that look like you know, the, the very odd satires and uh, kind of eccentric genre films that always are, they're always shot on film, except for he made one that was in digital, but they're all shot on film. They're shot on film that looks like it was shot in the 1930s and then stomped on and rolled over by a truck and scratched and the sound is bad. And, you know, they all, he just makes movies that look really weird and retro. So... Here's what the Forbidden Room is. You start with a guy uh, lecturing you about the glory of baths. And then you go from that, 
into a classic kind of 1940s uh, submarine melodrama. A bunch of guys on a submarine, and it's so far beneath uh, the surface, they can't go up because then some of the ordnance on board will explode and kill them, but they're running out of air. And so what they do is they need to, figure, they need to talk to the captain who is in the forbidden room. He's locked up in his little forbidden room. Meanwhile, somehow, unexplained to anybody, a lumberjack is able to make his way onto the submarine. And when they ask him how he got on, he starts to tell his story. And his story is the story of him and a bunch of other lumberjacks having to rescue this, this woman, uh, uh, this you know, dear woman of theirs, from this pack of weird kind of feral humans, the wolf pack, who live in caves somewhere in the mountains. And when he goes in there to liberate her, she has amnesia. And then from there, you go into her backstory, and then you go into somebody else's story, and then you see a newspaper headline which takes you into another story, and there's like a doctor, and he operates on a woman, and then she has plastic surgery, you and then his you're brother... Talking, you're talking a lot about a film that no one listening to this podcast will but ever see. But what I'm saying is, it's a compelling, fascinating movie, but there are... It, it, and it eventually comes full circle, and it wraps around itself and goes back inside itself and up its own intestines, but there are like... 55 actors in this thing and there are at least 27 different storylines that all kind of thread in and out and all over the thing and ultimately you realize he's basically just written a satire like a satirical pastiche of every old movie genre imaginable and there are things in here that are hilarious and weird and hilarious and weird but I, you got to know what you're in for. I mean, it's quite well, it's a, a guy Madden film. It's quite Every a guy Madden film. It is the most guy Maddeny movie I've ever seen. All right, I'm going to make up for lost time because Wade could, could have talked about that for another 20 minutes. Uh, we finally have on Blu-ray the landmark documentary, The Decline of Western Civilization. Uh, part one is on a Blu-ray, and then uh, Decline of Western Civilization Part Two is on a separate Blu-ray. You got to buy them separately. If you are not familiar with this film, then uh, how dare you? It is from 1981, and it is this uh, landmark look at the uh, punk scene in Los Angeles at the time. Uh, Part one includes Black Flag, Circle Jerks, Fear, Germs, and X. It was produced and directed by uh, Penelope Spheris. And the reason why people love this documentary is, even if you don't like the music, which, by the way, I kind of don't, these people are outrageously dressed their personalities are way out there. Their music is obnoxious. They lived in this weird drug and alcohol-fueled frenzy of the Los Angeles club scene back then. But Spheris, he doesn't, she doesn't look at their life with any sort of sarcasm or judgment. She has kind of a critical distance, and she looks at their life and what it really is. And so I think as a documentary, it really is very even-handed. It just sort of puts the camera on these bands and lets them go for better or ill. And it's amazing. It's very fresh, and uh, she. Some of the interviewees are just really funny and provocative, and just a little crazy. And uh, decline of Western civilization one uh, is just a landmark documentary. Two is not as successful. I mean, two is is great. Um, that one has Faster Pussycat and Megadeth, and uh, a couple others. Also features Alice Cooper and Ozzy Osbourne. But um, really, you should definitely check out Decline One because that is that is the masterpiece right there. Fantabulous. All right, and then i uh, got some double features here, uh, just to cut these out of the equation. One's from Blue Underground. Uh, this is a uh, kind of an old uh, ad- adventure action uh, double feature of Code 7, Victim 5, and Mozambique. Um, both of these strictly, strictly B-movies, but they're, they're better than average B-movies from the 1960s. They kind of... Um, 
a little bit of James Bond, a little bit of the beach movies, a little bit of kind of, you know, go-go stuff. I mean, it's sort of in the same vein when they, you know, all like all those, uh, uh, the, the Dean Martin, Matt Helm films, and then the... Uh, the James Coburn Flint films, which sort of tried to take James Bond into an even groovier, kind of hippier... Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit of that on a, on a B-level. Uh, Steve Cochran stars in Mozambique. If you don't know who Steve Cochran is, he was a good good B-level, solid guy. And uh, then uh, Victim 7, uh, Code 7, Victim 5 stars Lex Barker and Ronald Frazier. Um, yeah, these are all totally solid, and uh, you'll have a good time with this. So, uh, you know, the uh, that's that's worth checking out. Blue Underground. And then we have a couple from Scream Factory, the uh, division of Shout Factory. This one is Millennium and Rotor. Rotor is a uh, is an acronym, R-O-T-O-R, Judge, Jury, and Executioner. Kind of like a, a Judge Dread figure. Uh, and Millennium, of course, is the, uh, you know, a kind of a weird fut- retro future cyberpunk noir uh, both of these are from the 1980s when these things were, you know, the, the people were cranking these things out in the late 80s. It's when AFM was really just uh, flooded with all this stuff strictly because the video revolution created the straight-to-video boom and these things were being cranked out for next to nothing. The best thing about this is that Cheryl Ladd is in Millennium. So I highly recommend it just because Cheryl Ladd is in it. Uh, Daniel J. Travanti is also in it. Then the other one is The Curse and The Curse 2, The Bite as though it wasn't bad enough without the bite, the first curse. Uh, not so good in, the, in this case. These are, these are also a couple of uh, 1980s-era straight-to-video genre films, um, trying to sort of capitalize, trying to create a, a straight-to-video franchise at the time. Uh, the, 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 the concept of the curse is, you know, basically the same as every other horror film at the time, which is that some kind of uh, otherworldly thing came on a meteor, and uh, next thing you know, it's uh, people are people are transforming, kind of a pre-zombie zombie film in some ways. But anyway, uh, directed by David Keith, by the way, uh, who also did Firestarter and went straight downhill from there. And then The Curse 2 is kind of more the same with uh, an even lesser cast that only uh, has of any noteworthy in it, uh, anyone noteworthy. It's got uh, Jamie Farr and uh, Bo Svensson, who I saw at the market the other day. That's you saw all. Jamie Farr at the market? No, I saw Bo Svensson. I thought you said Jamie Farr. Uh, Jamie Farr and Bo Svensson. And I saw Bo Svensson at the market. I've never seen Jamie Farr. Wait, did, is Jamie Farr still alive? I don't know. That's a good question. We should, we, we should check. Uh, pro- pro- we wouldn't know if he were. He's probably wearing a dress. Aww. Uh, but no, I saw Bo Svensson. Every time I see... I, and I've seen him that's like three times in 20 years. But every time I see Bo Svensson, I always think, didn't Magnum kill you? It's the first thing that goes through my head. You know... And then I go to the Apples. Now, did you see him in Malibu at one of those little convenience no, no, stores no, 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 or no, supermarkets no, no. you're always no, no. seeing celebrities no, I saw him at? Gelson's. They all yeah. go to Gelson's. Yeah, they all, no, they all go to the Gelson's on Sunset Boulevard by the, by the yeah. uh, Pacific Palisades. Yeah, that's, that's where they all go. That's where I saw Sidney Pollack, and that's where I, that, I... Christmas Eve, honestly, Christmas Eve at that Gelson's is ridiculous. Everybody comes out of the woodwork. I see Martin Short there every year on Thanksgiving or the day before Thanksgiving, loading up for his big Thanksgiving feast, like three carts worth of food. Now, do you get there? When, do you get there when they open and then stay there until you see like three, four celebrities, and then you're satisfied no. and you leave? No, it's actually rare to see celebrities there, but there are certain days where they're all over the place. Do you think Martin Short says every time I go to Gelson's on Thanksgiving, I see, I see Wade that Major? guy? Yeah, <laughs> I see that, that guy. Wow. Yeah, unbelievable. All right. Um, Couple Frankenstein's for you because you can never have enough Frankenstein. Actually, I take that back. You can have you can have enough Frankenstein, especially when they star um, Danny Houston. Now, Wade and I have Wade and I have this weird 
We're going to have this like weird, irrational like dislike of Danny Houston's acting. <laughs> we really do. But he's been good in a couple of things. Yeah, sure. I, I've, I've liked him in a few things. Yeah, okay, right. I didn't mind him in Children of Men. I really didn't. Well, uh, Children of Men, I think, is just yeah. like the... Even he couldn't destroy Children yeah. of Men. But it also has Carrie Ann Moss, who we always like. Yeah. Anyway, this one directed by uh, Bernard Rose. Bernard Rose is the guy who uh, directed Candyman. So you know that this Frankenstein... But he also did Immortal Beloved. I know. And he but... also did a, a, a not such a terrible version of... Uh, of um, Star Wars. Uh, Anna Karenina. Really? Yeah, starring Sophie Marceau. Wasn't well, bad. Well, he's gone back to doing uh, crap because, um, look, you know this is not like a real deal Frankenstein when the only reviews of this film online are all like bloodydisgusting.com, yeah. horrorfilms.org. Like no, nobody legitimate is, is, is really reviewing this film because it's just really just a horror film. And what I guess if you like this kind of stuff, it definitely gets more into like the – like the uh, the viscera of what the guy looks like and how he's like all disgusting and he starts yeah. to like devolve uh, and it's this, we lives in this weird environment where he's it's just, no I, more. I, I guess if you want to treat it more like straight horror yeah. this might be the Frankenstein for you but it was not the Frankenstein for me we also have um, Frankenstein the miniseries Oof. now this is from 2004 yeah I remember this and it's got a terrific cast. It's got Donald good, Sutherland, though. William Hurt, Julie Delpy, and uh, you sort of can't really, uh, you can't knock the pedigree. I just think that this thing really was only notable for the makeup, which for the time was good. Actually, I believe it won an Emmy for Best Makeup, but I just think we got, we, you know, between this and I, Frankenstein, you remember I, Frankenstein, the one with Aaron Eckhart? Yeah, Eckhart? yeah. That which was horrendous. Which is terrible. Awful. You know, the only Unwatchable. Fra- the only Frankenstein movie that's really worth it, yeah. Young Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, I well, apart from the original and Bride of Frankenstein. The two James Whale films are, pre- are pretty great. No, no, no. Just Young Frankenstein. Uh, just Young Frankenstein? Okay. Which, which, you know, I got to say this. I know we, 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 never, we, never get, <laughs> we never get political on this show, per se. But, uh, you, you know, the, honestly, in a week where everyone is talking about Donald Trump's manhood, I just, it, it, everything is ridiculous all of a sudden. Um, that, that picture, first of all, after Chris Christie came out and endorsed Trump, and Trump's giving that long speech, and Christie is standing behind him, just sort of looking dumbfounded, I, I kept thinking to myself, it reminds me of something. It reminds me of something. What, what is it's like? I'm, this is nagging at me. And then I was like, Peter Boyle, right before they, uh, they sing on stage. Peter Boyle statement. Same look on his face. It was like it was, it was the living incarnation of Peter Boyle in that moment. I just thought that was so funny. Um, we have, here's some really great stuff. Um, Flicker Alley. Always comes up with some amazing stuff, uh, especially when it's on Blu-ray. Marcel Lerbier's La Numaine. Uh, in Without the accent, that would be Marcel Lerbier's uh, The Inhuman or uh, The Inhumane from Lobster Films. Uh, this is now on, uh, on Blu-ray from Flickr Alley, and it is absolutely dazzling. This is a, a two-hour uh, movie from 1924, that is one of the most fascinating uh, silent films that I have never seen prior to this. This comes from the uh, Black Hawk Films collection, which is, of course, David Shepard's collection. We gave a special award to David Shepard for all of his pioneering effort in preserving silent films at our LAFCA dinner. And uh, everybody got behind this in doing a restoration recently. It is, this is, it's really kind of amazing how gripping this still is this many years after the fact. Um, I, I was relatively infam- unfamiliar with Marcel Lerbier. I was unfamiliar with this film, and uh, it, it's it's quite a discovery. It is it is just a it is visually a feast. 
it is a fascinating silent avant-garde movie that winds up being still very much ahead of its time and uh, you, you, you just have to see it. You've got to get this. If you are a true cinephile, you definitely want to have this on your, uh, on your shelf. The, um, the idea here is that there is a... The, 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 the title is named for the woman, this inhumane woman. She's, she's kind of uh, mad and uh, lives just outside of Paris. And um, she is kind of... Uh, what do you want to say? Not, not like a lady of the night, but she's... Poor... Uh, well, no, but she's she's like Poor. a seductress. Let's just say she's a seductress, Poor. and uh, and it becomes a it, it almost. I would let me leave it here. I almost in in watching this, it dawned on me that this may very well have been a tremendous inspiration for Sunset Boulevard on many levels. Let's leave it there. Um, but it is a fascinating film and definitely, definitely needs to be seen. Um, beautiful, beautiful visuals. Uh, they did a, a, they scanned it at 4K, so you could probably expect at some point when uh, they start doing actual 4K Blu-rays that this film will be ready to, to rock and roll, and you're going to have to see it at that time. Really, really fascinating film. So, um, and then here are the here are the here are the mega goodies this week, Mark. We got two Criterion's, fantastic Criterion's. I knew her well. Which is a really cool '60s film from uh, Antonio Pietrangeli. Pietrangeli, I don't pronounce Italian as well as I pronounce French. Um, a movie from 1965, a great year. This is not a film that I had seen previously, but it is uh, one of the coolest kind of '60s groove films I think I've ever seen. Uh, there are a lot of movies that sort of try to capture that moment in the '60s when everything in Europe was just uh, you know freewheeling and. Uh, and uh, kind of libertine, and this is maybe the most realistic one that I've seen. Um, the uh, the actress who stars in this, Stefania Sandrelli, is not your typical Italian ingenue from the period. She's not uh, a sex bomb. She's just, I mean, she's beautiful, but there's something very earthy and very grounded about her. And uh, as a result, you are really drawn into all of her uh, her kind of libertine. Uh, um, hedonistic lifestyle and it, um, it it's not really one that is that positive, it doesn't reflect positively on the 60s it's actually quite a, quite a compelling and troubling film uh, in many respects really really well done uh, this is a 4K digital restoration with uh, a great great audio a new interview with the actress and um, a, an interview with film scholar Luca Brattoni, all about Luca Brazzi di- from The Godfather. Exactly, all wow. about the director's career and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, audition footage. It's really, really good. And then here is the big mama. This oh, is historic. Yeah. This is historic. Buy this tomorrow. The Graduate on Blu-ray. I don't need to tell you what the what the Graduate is. If you don't know what the Graduate is, uh, a, a guy named Ivan will show up with a silencer at your doorstep in about ten minutes because you have no reason to, to exist on this earth if you don't know the Graduate. Nineteen sixty seven, uh, Mike Nichols won Best Director for this, a legendary film. This was the year that In the Heat of the Night won uh, Best Picture, but Jewison did not get Best Director. Mike Nichols won Best Director. One of those split years. Uh, here's why this is so legendary. Back in the day of Laserdisc, The Graduate was one of the first really awesome Criterion Laserdiscs. And it had, uh, among its many, many, many uh, amazing extras, it had an audio commentary uh, by a UCLA professor named Howard Suber, which vanished once Laserdisc vanished. And that that commentary became a treasured thing. I think there were bootlegs of it online. Uh, It did not show up on any subsequent version of The Graduate. It is back. 
What? And what makes me so happy is Howard Suber was one of my professors. And uh, I have lunch with him, I have, not since my daughter was born, but I uh, used to have lunch with him a few times a year still. It's always a, a legendary moment. I just sit down and I just sort of feel like I'm in class again and I should be taking notes. Uh, extraordinary guy. Um, one of the great professors of all time at any film school. Uh, a wealth of knowledge and not professorial in demeanor at all. Um, I, when you sit in class and you're talking about Dr. Strangelove and uh, he, he lays in and says, you know why, uh, why he carries around those golf clubs in that golf bag? It's a phallic reference. They used to make golf bags out of elephant penises. That is the kind of critical studies class that you want to be in. In any case, Howard Suber is, uh, is a, the, the commentary is as great now as it was then. It is, just, it is one of the best commentaries you will hear for any movie ever. It is fantastic. Uh, and uh, it's, it, you also get an audio commentary from, um, the, uh, from 2007 featuring a conversation between Steven Soderbergh and Mike Nichols. And um, you get stuff, a new conversation between Lawrence Terman, who was the producer, and Buck Henry. Uh, documentary stuff, featurette stuff, behind-the-scenes stuff, a 1966 episode of the Today Show, uh, 1970 uh, Paul Simon performance of the Dick Cavett Show. It just never ends. This thing is amazing, and it is a, it's one of the most beautiful Blu-rays I've ever seen. It's fantastic. True, and, and also, if you're a uh, student of film, which hopefully you are by virtue of listening to this podcast, yes. you might want to get a sense of the historical importance of The Graduate and how it was one of the nails in the coffin in terms of like yes. the fifties and the studio system and how films used to be made it's versus fantastic. like all this counterculture. Because don't forget, you know, the idea that Mike Nichols would want shrimpy, Jewish, nebbishy, nerdy Dustin Hoffman to star because the studio wanted Robert Redford. I know they I wanted know. Robert Redford. You know, and, and I have to say this too. Um, going back to Suber. There, the, the, we watched The Graduate. I, I mean, I got the, the full spiel on The Graduate in that same comedy class where we talked about Dr. Strangelove, which was great. The, the best thing that we did in that class was to watch uh, Dr. Strangelove and then uh, Sidney Lumet's, um, the, his, his Dr. Strangelove, the, 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 which is, uh, I'm drawing a blank on. Wait, what is it? Wait, Sydney, that... Sidney Lumet's, um, um, his, his Dr. Strangelove film, his, his, you know, nuclear threat film. Oh, Failsafe. Failsafe, thank you. And uh, we, we watched those same day, back to back, because the idea being what makes one funny and the other one not, because it's basically the same movie. And uh, a legendary lecture. And then talking about The Graduates, Suber showed it, because the UCLA archives are right there, and they can pull out you know, anything you need. They've got a whole litany of screen tests for, for you know, actors who, who screen tested for the part. Robert Redford, John Gavin. Gavin was, was like the stiffest guy in the world. And the best screen test which he wasn't allowed to show, but he showed it anyway because he goes, ah, screw it. And he didn't say screw it, but it was great. Uh, So we wound up actually seeing a screen test by, take a guess. Woody Allen. No, I'll give you a a guess. He had a talk show once. He was in Midnight Run. Charles Grodin. Charles Grodin did a screen test. Charles Grodin screen tested for that part. You have no idea how funny it is. It's not right. He's just doing the Grodin-y thing. He, he's, he's too wry. Well, he's just being, he's just being kind of... He's, he's playing it too broad. And he's kind of playing that, that dumb lunk that he did at the time. Well, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? What are you, what are you talking about? It was so funny. It was so funny. So it's great to see those things. And they're, and they're really well-shot screen tests. It's not like video. It's on the set. The set is built. Catherine Ross is there. You know, it's shot... It was shot on a red. 
<laughs> on a red count. Yeah, exactly. Wow. All right, you know what? Hang on. Before we move on, a couple of because uh, we just talked about two Frankenstein uh, films. There's a couple more that I just saw in the pile. One is kind of worth uh, renting. This is uh, Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things. It sounds ridiculous. It's from like 1972, but you know what? This is a film that was directed by Bob Clark. Bob Clark is the one who went on to direct Porky's and Christmas Story. So Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things is not just like a zombie movie. It's a funny, low-budget zombie movie. And the good folks at uh, VCI really knocked this thing out of the park. A lot of great special features, Q&As and memories of working with Bob Clark. And there's also the alternate UK version, which is, you know, it's okay. It's not that much different. It's different, not that much different. And there is a uh, commentary track on this thing. And um, this is a super-duper low budget. It was done for like $50,000. And it's, you know, it's not always super funny. It's a little silly. But still, you're, you're really seeing Bob Clark kind of emerge and become what he would eventually be, which is the guy who did Christmas Story and Porky. So... As a little piece of film history, uh, Frankenstein-related or undead-related, uh, children shouldn't play with dead things. And on the other half of the spectrum, we have My Boyfriend's Back from 1983. This was directed by Bob Balaban. Uh, oh, my Bob gosh, that's right. I it, forgot he directed that. Good it, grief. Yeah. Bob Balaban, the, uh, you know him as uh, the translator in Close Encounters, and if you aren't that old, then you know him uh, probably as the, network, the NBC network uh, chief in Seinfeld. And if you don't know him as that, then maybe you know him... Uh, is a kind of a minor sporting character in uh, Altered States. Anyway, he's Bob Balaban. Altered States. Anyway, this thing is this thing is it's just nonsensical. It's aw- it's just awful. The, the 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 plot twists are just ridiculous, and it's just it, the thing is just like it's just nothing. I mean, there's the only reason why you'd want to see this film is because you get to see very young looking Matthew McConaughey. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten that Philip Seymour Hoffman's in this film. If you you know just like you blink, you miss him, but he's there. And uh, it's got a good cast, but in the end, it's just, just stupid. Anyway, it's about this guy who comes back from the dead to try to win back his girlfriend. But uh, he should have stayed dead because the movie's terrible. Okay, so uh, all right, here we go. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna blow through a bunch of uh, MOD stuff from uh, Fox and MGM. MGM distributes through Fox, so this is all from the same deal. This is the MGM limited edition collection. We have American Friends uh, with Michael Palin which is not a very good movie from uh, 1993. And uh, it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's all very much um, oriented around kind of a certain British educational subculture. I, I just can't. I, it, it, it means to be sort of more literate and, and uh, wry than it, than it actually is. Um, but I, the whole every, anything pertaining to Oxford and Cambridge is always kind of a stretch for me. Uh, you, you really have to; it has to be really, really literate and really well written and a great story. Revolt of the Slaves is kind of a standard nineteen uh, sixties uh, era sword and sandal uh, Roman Empire thing. Uh, not, it, it ain't Spartacus, that's for sure. And uh, it's you know kind of. The only the only sort of noteworthy thing about this is that it stars Rhonda Fleming, who would eventually, who was kind of a mid level starlet, who would go on to marry Ted Mann of Mann Theater fame, and uh, and that was it. And that was done. I think she's still around. Ted Mann passed away years ago. I once drove his car. Did I ever tell you that <laughs> when I was an usher at Mann Theaters? Well, uh, what? He showed up with the, with the with the big car, and he and mm-hmm. he like walk. I'm taking mm-hmm. tickets, and he hands right. me the keys and says, "Can mm-hmm. you go park the car up sure. the, the lot up the street?" Right, it was a mm-hmm. lot of good fun. I got to drive his car. Right. Uh, (laughs) 
Then we've also got from the Fox Cinema Archives, uh, These Thousand Hills, with Don Murray, Richard Egan, Lee Remick, uh, Stuart Whitman. Uh, you know, it's it, one, of those, one of those big melodramatic uh, adaptations of a Pulitzer-winning novel that doesn't really stand up to the novel. Um, it's okay. It's fine. You know, it's a good cast, but it's just a little bit... Uh, it's just too much of a, of a vehicle, really. Uh, directed by Richard Fleischer, kind of going uh, through the motions. And then we also have Peter Lorre uh, in one of the great Mr. Moto films, Mr. Moto Takes a Chance. If you haven't seen these, they are uh, borderline offensive, but uh, it's hard to be too offended because they've got Peter Lorre in them. Uh, the Moto films, of course, are, are like... Uh, they're sort of like Charlie Chan meets Indiana Jones, and that's really the best you can you can say about them. Uh, they're they're fine. You see a lot of Indiana Jones in these things, and you see a lot of other uh, you know kind of procedural movies and thrillers from subsequent years. But this is one of the better ones. Uh, Peter Laurie is just always wonderful. And then we've got a bunch that are from the. Uh, from the Regency Library. Now, New Regency, which is Arnon Milchan's company, which, has produ- which produced not only consecutive Best Picture winners in uh, 12 Years a Slave and uh, Birdman, but they also produced uh, The Revenant this last year. And uh, Arnon Milchan has been producing movies for decades. I mean, going back even, you know, Brazil and on and on and on. And uh, it, it's, it's a huge, huge library. Anyway, he's putting out some of his lesser stuff here uh, a lot of it's been released previously now it's on MOD uh, DVD-Rs from Fox and it includes Breaking Up with Russell Crowe and Salma Hayek bet you didn't know that those two acted in a movie together that was before Crowe was anybody The Power of One which is the movie that introduced Stephen Dorff basically this is uh, John uh, Avildsen doing the Rocky slash Karate Kid thing all over again except with a uh, you know from a boxing standpoint in South Africa, segregated South Africa. John Gielgud and Morgan Freeman uh, also in it. Uh, not bad. One of the better things that Dorf has done. He was really young at the time. Goodbye Lover with Patricia Arquette and Dermot Mulroney. Uh, also has in a small part Ellen DeGeneres and Don Johnson. Uh, nothing really great here. This is just a one of those uh, kind of wannabe screwball comedies with style that never really went anywhere. Uh, Carpool. Tom Arnold and David Paymer. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. This is, uh, for, this is back in the era when everybody's like, let, let, we want to do a vacation-type movie. You know, people kind of going wacky, and they're in a car, and they're going from somewhere, but we don't really want them to go on vacation. So fine. Okay. So they just get in a car, and they're carpooling, and it's wacky. Not funny. Uh, the New Age, Peter Weller and Judy Davis, uh, a, a Michael Tolkien directing effort that kind of falls a little bit flat, but, uh, you know, he was kind of riding high in the early 90s, wasn't he? I mean, he wrote The he Player. He had a moment. Well, when he wrote The Player, that he became a... Player, yeah, and then kind of died after that. Yeah, he kind of died, and this is sort of a reason he wrote and directed this, and it, uh, it's not really. It, it's sort of one of these movies that, that wants to be too much about all of the idiosyncrasies of Los Angeles, and uh, Peter Weller and Judy Davis are just a little bit too, I guess, pretentious. And then one of the most dreadful films, truly one of the most dreadful films of the 1990s. I don't, I don't know how this got greenlit. Uh, this is just appalling. This was like the nail in the coffin of Richard Benjamin's directing career. This was made in America. You remember this? Whoopi Goldberg and Ted Danson? Wait, isn't uh, Ted Danson the one who uh, uh, dressed in blackface? Yeah. Was he the guy who did that? Yeah, he, he did for a moment. And he and Whoopi Goldberg were also going out about this time. They were a couple. This is before he did the, he, he you know, veered over into Steenburgen territory. Uh, the idea here is, 
it, it, it's a, it basically, oh, how do I describe this without just horrifying people? Um, I mean, by the way, just to, to clarify that, the blackface, that, that was a roast for Whoopi Goldberg. Yes. So he appeared at a roast for Whoopi Goldberg Correct. in blackface, yes. and it was a huge, huge uh, deal at the time. So basically the idea here is, uh, poor Richard Benjamin, I feel so bad for him. This is basically a sperm donor comedy where with uh, Ted Danson revealed, Ted Danson is like a cheesy car salesman who is revealed as the father of Whoopi Goldberg's child, and it is just not funny in any conceivable way. It is just horrendous. I once went surfing with it's, Ted Danson. It's humiliatingly bad. I once went surfing with Ted Danson. I, I'm, 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 I don't really even want to know this story. I did? Ooh. See? I, I actually, he did the surfing. I didn't do my surfing. Okay. Anyway, um, folks, uh, very highly recommended is uh, Jafar, uh, Jafar Panahi's Taxi. If you're not familiar with uh, Jafar, he is one of the world's most important filmmakers because he is an Iranian filmmaker, and uh, because of the uh, overt political content in his films, the Iranian government has banned him from making films for 20 years. So for 20 years, the Iranian government says you cannot write any, you can't direct movies, you can't write movies, you can't you know give interviews with the foreign media. So basically, because of – can you imagine this in America? I mean, with Donald Trump's America, it could happen. With Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, could happen. But right now, it's just in Iran. So uh, Panahi, because he was making films critical of the government, he was banned by the government from making films in Iran for 20 years. However, that has not stopped him from making films. He made a great one, ironically called This Is Not a Film, and then now he's got this new one, which is just fantastic, called Taxi. And in Taxi, he – spends the day driving around the streets of Tehran picking up he's men so, and women. And he's so defiant. He is so defiant. <laughs> it's the guy, so amazing. The thing is that, you know, you, you know, when people think of, like, danger, you know, they think, oh, it's, it's, it's editing and music score, whatever. No, sometimes just making a film is dangerous. He, he, is, he is so defiant, and he just keeps doing this, and he's banned from filmmaking. He just keeps doing them and sending them out of the country. And it's fascinating because that whole class of amazing Iranian new wave filmmakers, have e- there, there, are, there are only three things that have happened. Most of them have left the country, like Karastami, out of the country. And then you have others like Majid Majidi, who are saying, okay, fine, I'll make what the government wants me to make. And they've kind of, like, they cry uncle, and he says, I, I, I want to make movies in Iran, and this is the only way I can make it, and he's making junk. You know, like he made this, this, this Muhammad biopic, which was horrible last year. It was their official Oscar submission. And then you have Jafar Panahi, who's just like, screw it, I'm going to stay here, and uh, you can tell me what I, what I can do and what I can't, but I'm going to do what I want anyway. So screw you. I mean, this is not it's a amazing. film. This is not a film to me felt even more dangerous because you, you, there were yeah. scenes of his cell phone conversations with his lawyer, with his lawyer, yeah. you know, and he's figuring out in his living room how to yeah. make this film without actually yeah. without actually making the film. Yeah. And so there's real danger in this, and that's what makes it so electric. And so Taxi is very highly recommended. All right, and then um, we've got a whole bunch here from Olive. All the films has continues to do a, a really amazing licensing stuff. Uh, they pick up all kinds of great stuff, and they've got a whole bunch of interesting films. And they're not all great, but they're all kind of noteworthy from the '80s and '90s in particular. Um, and some of them are even older. And here's one that's even older: Pressure Point with Sidney Poitier and Bobby Darin. How there's there's a buddy pairing that you never imagined ever happened. And uh, what an what an unusual movie that just really fell between the cracks here. Um, not just Sidney Poitier and Bobby Darren, by the way, but also Peter Falk is in this movie. It's the strangest uh, combination of characters uh, produced by Stanley Kramer 
and directed by a guy named Hubert Cornfield, which is not a name uh, for that any director should have. But uh, it has a certain... Uh, Kramer is really all over this. Forget about Cornfield. Kramer is all over this. And it's based on a Robert Lindner story. Um, and here's the idea. It's, uh, Peter Falk plays a uh, psychiatrist who is trying to... Um, help his black patient, played by Sidney Poitier, get over his hatred of other white people. And um, you, from there, you flash back into uh, this very, very disturbing um, backstory involving Bobby Darren, which I won't uh, get into the details of, because the details are meant to be very shocking to you, uh, especially considering that it's Bobby Darren. We love Bobby Darren. It's Bobby Darren. This is a very different Bobby Darren. Anyway, uh, beautiful, beautiful black and white cinematography. Really, really interesting story. Uh, very unusually told. So that is Pressure Point on Blu-ray with Sidney Poitier and Bobby Darren. Bravo to Olive. Really that, good film. That's actually an interesting uh, double feature with No Way Out. No, no oh, Way yeah. Out, which yeah. was his yeah. Poitier's first film, yeah. where he plays the black doctor who has mm-hmm. to treat the white criminal played by Richard, uh, the racist criminal played by yep. Richard Woodmark. That's actually a better film than I think than this film. Uh, it, 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 but this is this film's kind of lost. It sort of got oh, lost. Oh yeah, to, it's totally worth uh, a rediscovering. Worth rediscovering. And then there's uh, more recently, Speechless with Michael Keaton and Gina Davis. This was uh, when Michael Keaton was in his first stage of sort of asserting himself as a, a serious actor. Uh, directed by Ron Underwood, very nicely done. 1994. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, is that the Michael Keaton who has appeared in two consecutive Best Picture? Oscars? Sure is. Interesting. How did you ever think that that would happen? <laughs> two consecutive Best Pictures starring Michael Keaton. Like, like, uh, we, didn't we think that he was done? Didn't, didn't you feel like he was done? Although, I'll, I'll name drop. Maybe. I sat next to him at, at the bar at, what was, what's that restaurant on Wilshire Boulevard and 9th Street that used yes. to be a Chinese restaurant, and then it became like this trendy thing? Yeah, I can't remember, but I know what you're talking about. Uh, he, he was really Michael Keaton. Fast-talking, well, funny, this I was eavesdropping on their conversation. You know, he's good in this. Rusty Gina, Canyon. That's it, yes. He's good in this. Gina Davis is good in this. Um, this is when she was dating Rennie Harlan, and, and, you know, they produced this together. And it's basically a Gina Davis vehicle, uh, all about speech writers, you know, competing speech writers in, uh, in, in politics. Um, it, it's got some observations, but it's not great. But it's kind of, you know, I enjoy the stars. I, it was nice to rediscover, uh, you know. So Christopher Reeves is in it as well. It's, uh, it's okay. It's all right. It's all right. Wow. Yeah. Oh, is it my turn to talk yes, now? Yes, indeed. A couple more from all of these are all uh, marginal films. Moonlight and Valentino uh, kind of hit a, a little miniature chord when it came out in 1995, but it is very much a, a women's picture. Um, it's with Elizabeth Perkins, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kathleen Turner, and Whoopi Goldberg, and uh, directed by the guy who directed Rudy, which is funny. Nowadays, you'd maybe want to have a woman direct this, but... Elizabeth Perkins, who you remember from Big, she just lost her husband, and then she's having trouble moving on from that, and then her friends are there to help her, very much like beaches and women's pictures like that. Uh, this, What's funny about this film, if you like the rock and the roll, is that there was a moment when John Bon Jovi was trying to become an actor, mm-hmm. and he really was not bad. He was kind of good. He's in U- U571. <laughs> He's good. I, I interviewed He's in him. This. I interviewed him at the junket for U571, and he was, he was clearly stoned, but... Um, or awesome. seem to be, but uh, a little too mellow for, for a junket. Everybody else is, you know, pitched. But uh, he's really good in that film. He's really good. Uh, less successful is Secret Admirer. This is with C. Thomas Howell, Fred Ward, 
Lori Laughlin and uh, Kelly Preston. This is kind of a screwball comedy. It's kind of a romantic comedy. It's a it's it's two disparate tones that uh, David Greenwald, the director, never really uh, wound up meshing smoothly. But um, you know, it's got a good cast. D. Wallace Stone is in this. Corey Haim is mm-hmm. in this. So uh, Casey Shamasco, who had a moment uh, back in the day, he's in this too. This is from 1985. I would pass on Secret Admirer. Beat Street. Is funny stuff. Beat Street is it's all about these these break dancers in South Bronx, and it was from 1984. <laughs> this is back break, when the whole electric break, boogaloo, electric boogaloo break dancing <laughs> thing was happening, and Beat Street t- tried to uh, try to capitalize on that. So and weird. although it was funny, it was produced by David Picker, yeah, and Harry Belafonte, yeah. So you know, it was kind of a movie. This this thing definitely rode a wave. It's not a great film, but it's got some good. Music, you know, Rocksteady Crew, Grandmaster Mel. Come on, Grandmaster Mel, 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 yeah. Mel can't be that. So um, this is definitely a throwback film if you're of that age. Uh, we also have Class. Now, Class, I, I didn't mind Class that much. This one stars Rob Lowe and Andrew McCarthy. Uh, this is from 1983. It takes place in uh, prep school, and it's about uh, an older woman dating uh, one of the prep school kids. This one, not bad. This stars uh, uh, co-stars Cliff Robertson and John Cusack and also Alan Ruck from uh, Ferris Bueller. This one, I think, kind of, uh, it's a little bit comedic, but it also took its uh, themes pretty seriously when it, you know, when it had to. So class actually might be the best of the bunch. Probably one of the worst of the bunch is Amos and Andrew. Amos and Andrew, well, directed terrible. by a guy named Emax Fry, who had a moment. And uh, this stars Nicolas Cage and Samuel Jackson and the great Dabney Coleman. Unbelievable, this and, movie. And uh, it's just this comedy about this car thief and, uh, you know, and he winds up being, you know, hanging out with this hostage. And uh, it's just not funny. Really not funny. This is bad. This is Sam Jackson looks so young here. It, you, you really get a sense mm-hmm. of how long, because this is from 93. You get a sense, of, a sense of how long Samuel Jackson has been in film. Mm-hmm. Because really, when you think of Samuel Jackson, you think of him like Pulp Fiction onward. Yeah, uh, I but, agree. But really, like, he, you know, he looks like... You, you think of Sam Jackson as being like a really cool-looking 60-year-old man. But he's been acting since... Forever. For t- 30 years. And our, our last three on Olive, before we get into the Warner stuff, because I really want to get the Warner stuff in here before we uh, tie the show up. Mystery Date with Ethan Hawke and Terry Polo. What a weird misfire of a, an eccentric thing this was in 1991. Uh, this is one of the films that, that sort of heralded the end of Orion, right? Before they had... They were like in the middle of a spate of Best Picture winners, you know? Like kind of after Dancing with Wolves and right before... Uh, uh, Silence of the Lambs, but man, this is just bizarre. You think it's going to be a romantic comedy about a guy who's just in love with his neighbor. Uh, this is Terry Polo before Meet the Parents, and then it like turns into this bizarre kind of crime thing with a body in a trunk. It's a very odd film, but uh, not bad per se. It's just kind of typical of these strange genre splicing movies of the '90s. Uh, a totally underrated movie is Code Forty Six. Uh, this you know, was like cool, this man. This Michael was, Winterbottom film. You know, this was during my 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 my, my big uh, man crush on Michael Winterbottom. Yeah. You yeah. know, and this one, even though I don't know that it was one hundred percent successful, it was just really cool because Winterbottom was just—he was at the top of his visual powers. He was—he had this was this was after he had, he'd already worked with the screenwriter Frank Cottrell Boyce for Welcome to Sarajevo in the in the nineties, which I saw at Cannes. And uh, this is basically Michael Winterbottom doing a better job of the same kind of story that uh, Vim Vanders attempted until the end of the world. It is this. It is like a near future quasi dystopian. Uh, Thriller. It it's it it has a very very uh, cool vibe to it. Tim Robbins is wonderful. It has sort of a dreamy ethereal feel. 
Um, and it's it is it's like an intellectual uh, thriller in many respects, and it's really it's just a cool film. It's one of his best films, and I, I highly recommend this. It's a really good looking Blu-ray. And then the last film here from Olive, which I'm going to give really high marks to, uh, is Sleep with Me, uh, which I thought was uh, a, a really lame film at the time. And in hindsight, I, I realize it's a lot. It's a much better uh, kind of love triangle than I ever really gave it credit for. Craig Sheffer, Eric Stoltz, and Meg Tilly, all of whom have kind of gone off the grid uh, in recent years. But uh, this is really uh, this is really a very very sharp film, uh, directed by a guy that I actually was in school with, Rory Kelly, and uh, it has some. Uh, there's just some. There's some really really great honest acting in it. Roy Kelly's done like next to nothing since, but this is a great independent film from the, uh, from the early 90s. And um, Roy Kelly, by the way, he was like the guy that I used to rent equipment from at the equipment lab. You know, you, you go to the desk and he was this guy who gave you the equipment. Next thing you know, I'm, I'm at Cannes in 94 and he's there too with this movie. It was just a wild thing. But the, the best part of this film is a party scene where Quentin Tarantino uh, explains how everything in Top Gun is, uh, is a sexual innuendo. And it, that is that is worth you know it of course is the uh, it, it you know all of those all of those innuendos and double entendres are are familiar to us but he did a hell of a job he did a hell of a job with this movie Rory Kelly Bravo Sleep with Me great film uh, and uh, really worth checking out Craig Sheffer Eric Stoltz Meg Tilly and a great supporting performance from uh, Quentin Tarantino and then Mark we've got to talk about a few uh, Warner Archive titles here um, most notably Big Sleep. And uh, Key Largo. Oh, yeah. Uh, both of these are a big deal. And big deal. They, they are on Blu-ray from Warner Archive. Both have undergone extensive restoration. And uh, the, the, uh, here's the thing that I love on The Big Sleep. The Big Sleep, I think, looks fantastic. I think they've done an amazing job. They also include the 1945 alternate version on here, uh, which many people feel is a better version. The uh, 1945 version, however, it does not look as good as uh, the other, and they, ha- they have not done a real number on it like I had hoped they would. So the, that is un- largely unrestored. But the, uh, the film itself, the actual release version of the film, is fantastic. Classic Raymond Chandler. Uh, you also get a, a, a comparison between the two versions on here, as well as an introduction by Robert Gitt. Um, the, but, you know, I mean, as far as the, big, the, the, the release version of The Big Sleep, this is, this is it. Hopefully at some point they'll be able to do the uh, pre-release version, uh, give it the, the same attention. And Key Largo, I can say nothing about. Key Largo, uh, nothing bad about. Key Largo is a fantastic film, amazing uh, production value. The whole hurricane sequence is still just tremendous. And... Um, the editor of this was one of my editing teachers. I'm just going back to film school. I know I'm name dropping left and right today, but uh, Rudy Fair, who would edit Pretty's Honor with his with his daughter, was this was one of his big editing gigs back in the uh, the uh, golden days. And it's a wonderful, wonderful film. It's a great film, uh, directed by John Huston. Some of his best directing of the era. Uh, Richard Brooks and John Huston together wrote the script. How's that for a couple of hard boiled guys? Right? No. They're lame. Richard Brooks and John Houston. Can you imagine being in that room when they're writing together? Yeah, well, what, what if Danny Houston was there at the same time? I'll bet you, I'll bet you they were just drinking and punching each other uh, and then occasionally sitting down and typing something. John Houston was a... Uh, he was a hellraiser. He was a hellraiser. And Richard Brooks, too. Read that, but again, read the, uh, the um, uh, Ray Bradbury book about the making of uh, the writing of uh, Moby Dick. Yep. You yep. read a lot about John Houston. You sure do. Real cantankerous drunk. You sure do. And then the uh, the last two 
are a pair of Hitchcock films, The Wrong Man and I Confess. Two of these... I two, love The Wrong Man. Two gaping holes in the Hitchcock uh, Blu-ray compendium right now. People have been like, okay, so here are the Hitchcock films that we're missing. Uh, missing, uh, you know, The Wrong Man and I Confess. The thing is, is that and they're like, both great. Look, Hitchcock was all about, you know, the innocent man accused of something, got yep. himself out of it. And a lot of times that was, you know, Cary Grant or Jimmy Stewart, whoever it was. But Henry Fonda, who was like, so like iconic, he was the iconic face of decency in yep. American Grapes of Wrath yep. and Henry Fonda. To see Henry Fonda go through that was a whole different thing. It, it, and he's it, great. And, he, and not only is he great in that, but I confess is fantastic because of the same thing. Montgomery Clift, who's essentially in the same position as a priest. You know, uh, I mean, it, 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 where he hears the, he, a killer confesses to him, and boom, that puts him into this un- unbelievable predicament. I mean, it's classic Hitchcock, both of these. They're on beautiful Blu-ray transfers, really, really first-rate. Uh, there's a great, great uh, making-of documentary on uh, I Confess called Confession, uh, a look at I Confess, and then there's also uh, premiere stuff. And then on uh, the uh, Fonda film, The Wrong Man, there's also a making-of documentary called Guilt Trip, Hitchcock and the Wrong Man, as well as a trailer. Uh, you got to add these. If you're a Hitchcock fan and you're missing these, there's a gaping, gaping hole in your system. So I, with it. that, that's it. And uh, we are done for this week. Mark, enjoy the birthday party, and we'll be back next week. Happy birthday to a guy we doesn't know. Happy birthday.